Hi everybody, it's good to be with you again today. I trust that you are well, and I trust that you've had a good week. I've had a cold for the last two days, nothing at all serious, but it's just meant that my preparation for First Peter is a little bit behind. And so seeing as it's Father's Day, we're going to have a look at Luke chapter 15, a very famous story. At the beginning of the chapter, Luke tells us that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in response, Jesus tells three stories about the lost and found department. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. As one writer puts it, the sheep was lost due to its own stupidity. The coin was lost by accident, but the son was lost intentionally. He went. I hope you'll have a chance to read the whole chapter for yourself, but we're going to focus in on verses 11 to 31, the story of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. I'm sure that we're all familiar with this story, the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. Some of you may have or have had a prodigal son or prodigal daughter, and you know the pain of losing someone. Some of you may be or have been prodigal sons or daughters, and you know what it's like to be lost and possibly what it's like to be found again. This is a very human story. Jesus begins the story in verse 11 by telling us that there was a man who had two sons. And although the focus of the story is going to be on the one who is lost, the story is actually about a father. There was a man who had two sons, not there was a son who had a father and an elder brother. The story is about a father, about God. This father's youngest son comes to him with a request, verse 12, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which sounds like a reasonable request until you think about it for a moment. Kenneth Bailey is a New Testament scholar, someone who's worked in villages in the Middle East for over 20 years. And he's written a book on the parables. And this is what he has to say about this parable. He says, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implication of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. That's what the son is saying, in effect, to his dad. Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. But apparently this father cared more about his son than he cared about his property, and so he did what the youngest son requested. He divided up his estate. Under Jewish law, that would have meant that the eldest son received two-thirds, which the father held in trust for him, and the younger son received one-third immediately. And we read in verse 13 that shortly after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. He gathered together all of his possessions. He took his posters down off his bedroom wall. He loaded up his childhood bookcase. He didn't leave anything behind that would bring him back home. And he set off for a distant country. In our day, that would probably mean that he emigrated. He put as much distance between him and his father as possible. He had no intention of ever coming home again. This father never expected to see his son alive again. Later on, the father would say to his servant and his eldest son, This son of mine was dead. He was lost. What a terrible amount of pain this father must have felt. Now, unfortunately, this isn't a story about a young man in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. This is a story about me, and it's a story about you and our relationship with God. It's probably not just a once-off story about me or a once-off story about you. It's a story that's repeated many times and probably all through our lives. 
It needn't be anything particularly dramatic, but all of us, in the words of a song by Michael W. Smith, have taken journeys that have led me far from you, Lord. What does it mean for us to leave home? The writer Henry Nowen suggests that we leave home every time we live as though we don't have a home and must go searching far and wide to find a home. I leave home every time I reject God and go looking for love and affirmation somewhere else. I leave home every time I stop listening to God's voice saying, You are my beloved son, and I start listening more intently to the other voices around me. I leave home every time I try to find unconditional love in anyone or anything else other than God. You see, every day and all our lives we are surrounded by other voices, from the television, from the media, from people around us. The voices say things like, you're only worth something if you act in this way. You're only worth something if you have money. You're only worth something if you're better than other people. You're only worth something if you are more powerful. You're only worth something if you have this thing. Those words that I quoted, you are my beloved son, you'll remember that those were the words that God the Father spoke to his son Jesus at Jesus' baptism. And I think it's so significant, and certainly no coincidence, that straight after Jesus heard his father's voice, he was taken out into the desert where he too confronted these other voices that we hear every day. He was confronted by the voice that says, you're only worth something if you're successful. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He was confronted by the voice that says, you're only worth something if you're popular. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Let everyone see what a great guy you are. He was confronted by the voice that says, you're only worth something if you're powerful. All these kingdoms I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus experienced all of those voices, but he hung on to what his father said about him. And that's what we have to keep on doing too. It isn't always easy to do. We sometimes say to our children, it doesn't matter what other people think about you, it's what God thinks that's important. But that's hard to believe when you're little and when all the other kids think that Susan is the best because she's the prettiest and has the best toys and gets the best marks. It doesn't go away when we're older. As a pastor, I've often had people in my study, beautiful people, both outside and inside, with so much potential, and yet they don't feel good enough, and it's difficult to get them to feel God's love. What do we do then? It's important that each day we listen to God's voice, which we hear most clearly in Scripture. Because so many voices shout at us throughout the day, it's important every day for a long period of time to hear God's voice, to actively seek him out and listen to what he says. And as I do that, I discover a couple of important things. I discover that I belong to God. I belong to him through creation. I read in Psalm 139, for example, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Not only that, but as I read on, I discover I belong to God through redemption. When I was lost in sin and darkness, God brought me back, as Peter reminds us, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Not only that, but as I read on, I discover I belong to God through indwelling. I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? I remind myself of these things again and again, so that I don't leave home and try to find a home somewhere else, apart from my father. Well, the son does leave home, and he goes off to a distant country, and we read in verse 13 that there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Later on, the elder son would go into a bit more detail. He accuses his brother of squandering his father's property with prostitutes. I remember reading about a little girl in Sunday school having to write about the prodigal son, and when she came to this part, she asked her Sunday school teacher what wild living meant. And the Sunday school teacher tried to explain to her as best she could without going into too much detail, and the little girl seemed to understand. When the Sunday school teacher looked to see what the little girl had written, she saw that she'd put, The prodigal son went to a faraway country and had himself a good time. But there is a high cost to low living and the younger son paid it. Eventually he ran out of money, and then a famine hit the land, which meant that he was in big trouble. Nobody had need of a playboy any more. They needed workers in order to survive. And so the son has to hire himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he has to take the lowest job imaginable. He ended up feeding pigs. For a Jewish boy, there could be no worse job than taking care of pigs. Not only did they stink, but they were unclean animals according to God's law. Looking after them would make one physically and ceremonially unclean. It gets even worse because we read in verse 16 that as far as the citizens of that country were concerned, the pigs were more important than the sun was. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. The son gets to the point where he discovers that the things he thought would bring him satisfaction have left him hollow and empty. We're not told how long the son stayed in the mud and the manure of the pigsty, but we do read in verse 17 that eventually, one day, he comes to his senses. What am I doing here? My dad employs servants who eat better than I do. I'll go back to my father. I won't go back as a son because I forfeited the right of a son, but I'll go back and ask him for a job. Then at least I won't starve to death. What was it that turned this young man towards his father? Was it a realization of the hurt that he must have caused his dad? Was it a stab of conscience over the way in which he'd squandered his father's hard-earned money? Was it guilt over the immoral life that he'd lived in that land? No, it was none of that. The son goes back to his father out of painfully selfish motives. He's hungry. But that doesn't seem to matter to the father. And it doesn't seem to matter to our heavenly father either. As one writer puts it, apparently it matters little to God whether we approach him out of desperation or out of longing. 
Well, the son heads towards home, and as he goes along, he rehearses a little speech that he plans to give his father. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. The son says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Although this is a great illustration of what it means to repent, to turn away from one life and go in the opposite direction towards God, this is a very tragic speech. And it's particularly tragic because some people still today think like this when they come back to God. They think something along these lines. I know I can't make it on my own and so I'll go back to God. But I know that things can never be the same between us again. I know that I've blown it with God. And so I'll kind of stand on the sidelines and I'll watch as the others, God's true sons and daughters, those really spiritual people, those who serve God faithfully, those who haven't sinned, I'll watch as God loves them. I'll be like one of the servants in the background. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. How tragic that some people get stuck there and don't experience the fullness of God's forgiveness and a life that is changed to be productive in the future. You know the end of the story. You know what happens in the rest of verse 20. I wish you didn't. I wish this was the first time we were hearing the story this morning. Because we can get so used to the grace of this father that it can lose all of its original impact, perhaps it would be better if I told you about another homecoming. It's a story about another prodigal son who lived not in ancient Palestine, but in modern-day Puerto Rico. The son had done almost exactly what the son in this chapter had done. He'd left his small village and his oppressive father and gone off to the big city, and there he'd fallen into the world of drugs and crime and prostitution. He'd dragged the family name through the mud. Everyone knew about him and the pain and the embarrassment that he'd caused his family. But he too came to the point where he just wanted to come home. And so he sent a letter to his father apologising for his behaviour and asking if he could come back home. But he was very uncertain about how his father would react. And so he wrote in his letter, As you know, the train coming into our village goes right past our house before stopping at the station. If you can find it in your heart to forgive me, then please hang a white pillowcase outside our window. And when I see it, I'll know that you've forgiven me. But if it's not there, I know that you haven't forgiven me, and I won't get off at the station. I'll just keep on going. Well, the day for his return came, and this young man was really very nervous. All the way home on the train, he wondered whether his father would really accept him. His father was a really strict man who had terribly high standards. It was one of the reasons he'd run away in the first place. And the other passenger who was sat in his carriage noticed his nervousness and asked him what was going on. And this young man told him the whole story. And as they came towards his village, this young man was so nervous he couldn't even look out the window. And so he asked his fellow passenger to look outside and see if he could see a white pillowcase. And the other passenger looked out and he turned to the young man and he said, I'm sorry, there isn't a white pillowcase, but come and see for yourself. 
and the young man looked out of the window and he saw that every tree in the village was covered in a white sheet. Every window in the village had a white pillowcase in it and his father was stood in front of a waving crowd, waving a white flag. That is what happens in Luke chapter 15. Just look at what this father does. Jesus tells us three things in verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. Do you think that that was just a coincidence? He happened to look up and there was his son. No, the son was a far distance away. The father would have had to strain to see him in the distance. And I believe that the father had done that every evening since his son had left, probably constantly throughout the day, every now and then looking towards the horizon, quickly looking up whenever people greeted someone coming into town, but especially at the end of the day when the work was over and in the cool of the evening, looking into the distance and thinking about his son. Although this young man has just started to think about home, he's never been out of his father's thoughts. Jesus tells us, secondly, that this man was filled with compassion for his son. And thirdly, Jesus says he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He doesn't let his son trudge the long, guilty path towards his home, past all the staring villagers. He doesn't let him sweat it out and think about all that he's done. The father runs. This might seem fairly ordinary to us, living in a society where most of us do a fair bit of running, and some people even jog for fun. But remember again that this is the ancient Middle East. In those days, men of the father's age did not run. In order to run, you would have to gather up your coat around your knees and expose your legs. Those things just weren't done by respectable middle-aged Jewish men in those days. But this father doesn't care about tradition or appearances. The only thing that he can think of is, I have to get to my boy. I love this scene. I can imagine the son taking out his little prepared speech from his pocket and clearing his throat and saying, <clears throat> Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't even get to finish his speech. He can't even get to the part about being like a hired servant because he's almost knocked off his feet by this whirlwind that he is his father. And his father isn't listening. He's talking. Verse 22. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The Pharisees believed that repentance needed to take place with fasting and tears and confession. And there is a place for tears. But Jesus says that fundamentally repentance is a joyful thing. Somebody has come home. Just going back a few verses to the parable of the lost sheep, listen to what Jesus says in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Isn't it interesting to see that the greatest party that this young man had was not in the distant country where he expected to find pleasure, but was back home with his father. By the way, I think that the father's actions in this parable are very important for another reason, because there is sacrifice here. 
Many people look at the parable and say, you see, all this about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is unnecessary. There is no sacrifice here. No one has to die. All that needs to happen for us to be reconciled to God is that we need to be sorry. Well, there are two responses to that. Firstly, that kind of statement ignores all that the rest of the Bible has to say about Jesus' death for us. But secondly, it misses the element of sacrifice that's implicit in this story. You see, the whole village would know that the returning son was a disgrace. They would have known that some punishment would be necessary just to restore this father's honour. But instead of giving disgrace and suffering, the father takes it on himself. As I said, a man of this age and position always walked in a slow, dignified way. He hasn't run anywhere for any reason for the last 40 years. And yet he races down the road like a teenager to welcome his son. All of the little street urchins would have laughed at this man, and yet he takes on himself the shame and humiliation that was due to his son. As Kenneth Bailey puts it, In this parable we have a father who leaves the comfort and security of his home and exposes himself in a humiliating spectacle in the village street. The coming down and going out to this boy hints at the incarnation. The humiliating spectacle in the village street hints at the meaning of the cross. For the suffering of the cross was not primarily the physical torture, but rather the agony of rejected love. Well, it would be lovely if this story ended at verse 24, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. It reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who asked her class, who wasn't happy when the prodigal son returned? To which a little boy answered, the fattened calf. In verse 25, we're introduced to another character, the elder brother. And I can sympathize with him to a certain extent because I am an older brother and actually the older brother of two sons. This older brother comes back and hears all the parting and I'm just very glad that I didn't have to be the one who had to go out and tell him what was going on. When the older brother hears what is happening, he refuses to go inside. And so this poor father has to go out, searching again. This time he has to go outside and search for the older brother. And when he finds him, the older brother lets loose all of the feelings and the emotions that he's been bottling up for years. Verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. One writer has suggested that this parable should be called the parable of the lost sons. Because when you read the son's words, you realize that he too was lost, possibly even more lost than the younger son. The eldest son had no concept of what it meant to be a son, and therefore what it meant to be a father. That phrase, all these years I've been slaving for you, gives him away. He was trying to be acceptable to his father through his goodness. The younger son comes back to his father and says, don't let me be your son, make me your servant. But this older son was already a servant and needed to become a son. I used to think that these two sons represented two separate responses to God's grace, but actually I think they represent the two parts of genuine Christian repentance. 
Remember Jesus is telling the story to the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand, those who have obviously left home, but he's primarily speaking to the Pharisees, who, as Luke tells us later in chapter 18, were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. You see, you don't become a Christian just by repenting of your sins. There's nothing unusual about that. Everybody repents of their sins. In every religion, there's a way to repent. Even irreligious people repent of their sins. They see they've done something wrong and they say, I'm sorry. Everybody repents. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you finally repent of your righteousness, when you give up your own attempts to make yourself right with God, when you give up trying to be your own saviour. In one of his sermons, Pastor Tim Keller points out that actually having our own righteousness is a way of trying to avoid Jesus. If I live a good life, then I don't have to see myself as a sinner completely dependent on him. If I live a good life, then I don't have to completely give myself to God because I've lived a pretty good life, and therefore he can't ask anything of me. He can ask certain things of me, but not anything, because I've lived, I've done good things, I'm a taxpayer, I've got rights, I've done the things I need to do. But becoming a Christian means recognizing the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. It means recognizing that Jesus died the death I should have died, and Jesus lived the life I should have lived. And he attributes his good life, his righteousness, to me. And therefore, in comparison to what Jesus has done to bring me to God, all my best deeds and performances, all my righteousness, is, as Isaiah says, simply filthy rags before God. Righteousness is the last idol that needs to be taken out of the human heart. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we recognize that we are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. This morning, can I ask you, have you come home? Maybe you're in a distant country. Maybe it's not particularly distant, but you're just not at home with your father. He longs to have you back. And here we get a marvellous picture of what it will look like when you do come back. No long lectures about how you've messed up your life. No go to your room for a week and think about what you've done. Just the opportunity to start again. But then I need to ask us, have we come home truly? all the way home. Some people are stuck in the fields outside the house, madly trying to work their way back into God's good books. Have you truly come home, not to a set of principles or morals or model ways of behaving, not to a habit of coming to church, going to church activities, but back home into the arms of God who loves you and who longs to have you love him? May God bless you.